Welcome back, everyone, to the Party Talk podcast, where we empower leaders in youth drug prevention. And today, I'm super excited. Uh, we have my friend Caitlin Alfonso here on the call with us. And we're just going to chat about life, about work, about impact, uh, and kind of what took her into this role and everything like that. But Caitlin, will you just go ahead and give us the good old intro? Yes. Hi. I'm so excited to be here. So I have been in the social work field for over 10 years, and I've done some really awesome like youth programming in different areas, including like juvenile detention and parks and recreation. And currently, um, I've been in the public school setting now for about four school years. So that's where I'm, I'm at currently. Wow. And what got you into like this kind of work? Why did you decide to go into that? Yeah. So I... I fell in love with working with teens very early on in my career. So um, I was still in college when I got offered a, uh, the opportunity to go into um, just programming at the juvenile detention center. And I've always knew I wanted to be in a helping like profession. Um, I grew up with a sister with disabilities. And so I I just really knew that that was where I wanted to go um, and just support people and, and help them reach their potential. So. Um, I fell into social work with that mindset and then really fell in love in particular with adolescents and youth. Um, and so I started out in juvenile detention and really just just met some amazing youth that had just some just incredible stories. Um, and just from there, just really explored uh, just working and building um, programs in particular that helped them, again, just overall reach their potential and and follow their dreams in different areas. And so uh, when I returned back to Arizona, um, the opportunity came to to be at a high school setting. And I thought, well, you know, that one I haven't actually been. I've worked with tons of high school students, but never with them day to day in the school setting. And so I just jumped on that opportunity when it came. And here we are. OK, cool. And it's, I'm, I'm curious from a point of learning because you you're just like really smart and really thoughtful. So is there a <laughs> yeah, is there a part when you think about mental health and you think about prevention and bringing out the best in people is there a part in there that really sparks your interest and you love talking about and sharing about oh a part of like mental health um and youth prevention you know i think i think it's really interesting for me i think everything's connected so i think we get into these conversations and dialogues and it's um you know really oh, it's this category and this category. And for me, I see everything as just flowing, you know, from one thing into the next and back to the other. And it's very organic. And so what excites me about these conversations is that they're so multi-layered. Cool. So what is, for example, like I would agree with you 100%. And let's say someone says, no, they're like, they're not connected. Like, what are you talking about, Caitlin? Uh, these are, these are separate things. Like, what would you say to that? Like, is there an example or something that you're like, Hey, this is connected to this is connected to this. In, in general, um, I know this is a, a larger scale, but you know, I think that we, you know, when, when I talk with my, my students at my university, for example, and their upcoming social workers, you know, for a long time, the dialogue was that there's, there's policy social work and there's you know, there's clinical social work and when you're in the clinical, you're in the ground and that's where you really work with mental health. Um, but we're seeing right now, you know, in, in, you know, across the nation, different legislation being put. And so, um, you know, when you look at it from that big, you know, that big scale, everything that's happening at the very top 
really does impact what's happening on the clinical level. And so you can't really say that they're separate anymore because each decision impacts the other. The clinical, you know, data goes, is supposed to be going and driving the, the policies, but if the policy doesn't consider the data, then they're making new legislations and policies um, that impact how our, our, our professionals are working in the field to support people. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And again, I would actually agree with you a hundred percent because in, I think in our field, right, with prevention and social work and emotional health is that you, it's kind of like that is the outcome of a different problem or a separate problem. Like you said, they're all connected. So the foundation might be a trauma that happened um, or a relationship that is toxic. Uh, like, you know, maybe five years ago when I was doing this work, I would always talk with school counselors. Those are the people that wanted to work with me and bring me in for speaking engagements. And more recently, I've been noticing more titles of school social worker all around the nation, which is very good. That's a great thing to see. And um, I want to I want to dive into your experience a little bit and ask you is as far as the support uh, or like the landscape on the, each area where you were a social worker, uh, what was it like in those different areas? Um, if, if you have an opinion on like the differences, yeah. what it was like. You know, the interesting thing is I, it's funny, I was reflecting on this not too long ago because I realized part of a common theme in my career path is I've kind of been the first social worker to enter into a lot of non-traditional settings. Um, so for instance, I, I worked in parks and recreation um, for a county in Florida. And so um, I did youth programming out there and I was I was a social worker and in, in parks and recreation, like why, you know, like that's the what, you know? And so I'm building up this program to support, you know, for, for teens across the county and this internship program and um, really doing, doing that. And um, I realized, you know, at that time, and this was in the 2000s, they didn't have a child abuse policy. And this was a parks and recreation center that had, you know, the most children enrolled in after school care. And they're mandated reporters, but they technically still in the 2000s did not have, you know, um, a, a policy for child abuse reporting. Um, and so that was a really interesting thing for me to go in and be like, okay, I know I'm the only social worker, but really, like, y'all been working with kids for this for this long, like, why, you know, and so it's kind of taking that step back. And so, um, you know, the, then to come in to the school setting, and, um, you know, and and come in at a time where, especially at the high school level, they've been at the younger at the elementary school levels um, in my particular district for a while. Um, but they haven't really been at the high school level. Um, you know, at one point in time, like, there there might have been like a little bit of coverage. But for for the majority of it, this role hasn't existed at the high school level. And so um, coming in and really supporting people and understanding what social work is, how we can support in these different fields, um, and what exactly we we can, our skill set, um, can step in and do to support our, you know, um, our communities is really important. But that's definitely been a common thread in my personal career is moving into these non-traditional roles and kind of making space for social workers, truly. And can you talk a little bit about with your experience lately, what what are students going through that you're seeing this 
maybe this generation or these last couple of years, has there any common themes of what the students are facing? You know, I would I would love to say that there's common themes, <laughs> but it's everything. Like it's a it is life's been hard lately, like for so many people, for so many reasons. Um, and I I've realized, and you know, again, I'm a big data person. So like I I always kind of just tracked numbers of how many, you know, that's something that we do as well, but we track, you know, just how many students we typically see in a day. And that number has climbed every single year. This year has not even ended. And I've already surpassed what the amount of students in actual crisis that I had last year. I almost hit that number in one semester. Um, so, and then in, in this semester alone, you know, I had a hundred students in crisis in my office in 20 days when we came back from Christmas. Yeah, it is a lot. So um, it's wow. diverse. It's everything. <laughs> okay. That's, that is like insane to say that you've surpassed the previous year in one semester and to hit a hundred in 20 days. Did I hear that right? A hundred students coming into your office in crisis in 20 days. Yes. And that crisis can like literally range from, you know, I, my family, uh, you know, I need a food bag or, you know, some, some, uh, uh, a basic need um, with clothing or school supplies all the way, you know, to um, we've lost our housing or the police were at my house where I need to, you know, I was sexually assaulted or whatever, you know, the need is my, my parent died, uh, you know, we've lost a pet, like all these different types of things, whatever, uh, you know, whatever it is, crisis really is the perception of the person. So it's not for me to say, well, this isn't a true crisis. Like this is lesser. If our emotions and our reality, and that's our realities, I'm in crisis, then we are in a state of crisis. So how can you possibly serve that many students like what how could you do that or what did you do i'm i'm so curious how do you handle that it's the million dollar question you know and i i i don't think that there's a good answer so the ratios are still very um uh unrealistic at most schools i mean when you've got one person to the whole student body for me that's over two thousand students um the reality is i'm not supporting every single student the reality is, is I may see one student that I, that I typically only see students in crisis, um, maybe one time ever. Um, and so that is, that's a huge, I think, area that we need to have growth in is we have the numbers to say we're in this level of crisis. We need more support. It's just getting that, um, the advocacy there to, uh, to, you know, the funding, all the things that come with that, because it's it's truly not possible to serve students the way that they deserve to be. Um, and it is one of the things that is that's that's very tough, you know, to go. I had I knowing at the end of the day that you still saw, you know, seven to 10 kids, uh, but there's still so many more out there. Or the next day, it's seven to 10 different kids, different crisis, different day. Um, and there's not a lot of ability to do follow up. And that's that's challenging because, um, you know, if, if you have a student come in and say, you know, um, I'm struggling with, you know, substance use and you want to be able to get them resources and then follow up and say, how did that go? Have you been connected? 
Um, and, and that follow-up bit is the part that often falls through the crack. So the initial ability to help may be there. Um, it's the follow-up that's that makes it even more challenging. Um, and you're constantly trying to just sneak them in when, oh, I think we might have a lull moment. Let me go to my list and see who I need to follow up with and who's who's that priority there to make sure that X, Y, Z happens. Um, but that is, a, that is a big challenge. Okay. Wow. I can imagine if I were in your shoes, yes, I would be asking for, hey, can I have budget for another person like myself on campus, maybe a part-time person to follow up and see if they need another appointment or a a time to chat or just to ask, hey, did you follow up with this resource to remind the student or um, their parents if you're allowed to do that or, or anything. But that, like you said, that comes with, all right, well, now the school board or someone has to approve this and you have to get funding. Um, and I imagine too that as more and more students come into your office and like you said, you're collecting data, there's maybe part of your mind to say, okay, we need these resources to deal with the crisis. And then we need these resources to pour into prevention to, to help before this gets out of hand for the rest of the student body. And, and that's again, like the whole picture, like the it's holistic health, it's holistic prevention and response. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. The prevention, the prevention bit is definitely my passion. So, um, but realistically uh that it shifted very much into just constant crisis intervention um so at that point we're looking at students already struggling or already um something traumatic has happened or is in the works like it's it's we've missed that prevention window um you know and and i think you know we've created some spaces um yeah, my school in particular, like a mindfulness center and things like that, that was highly, was developed with very um, prevention, with a prevention specific lens. And we had a big vision for the space and then COVID happened. And so, um, you know, as the crisis levels went up, the ability to do prevention has definitely decreased um, and we just don't have the personnel to be able to do it. So yes, absolutely. I think the, the number one thing that um, can really help with schools right now is is to be able to get these mental health crises um, supported and family supported in, in this way. But the challenge is, is that it's already a new role. They've worked well enough without, you know, without this role. Um, there's all these different, you know, arguments and different perspectives and things happening um that kind of gridlock the money and the ability to get that extra that extra personnel um which is unfortunate so okay well i want to i want to end our our time together to talk for you know five or six minutes on some of the things that you are really proud of that you did or ideas that you implemented that you're just like oh man that is so cool that we did that uh or just personal stories that that make you hopeful and like, yeah, cool things. And that people might be able to steal from you and say, oh, I could do that, you know? <laughs> yes. So I think, you know, a large, I mentioned our mindfulness center and a lot of schools uh, in particular have created beautiful, great spaces for that. Um, and so even though they may not be, you know, being able to be utilized as much as I know many of us, and you know, want them to be or in the capacity, like I'm still 
super excited to see that these spaces exist in schools and to know that that's one of the things that I was involved with as well. But my number one thing that I'm proud of with my school in particular is um, a space that we developed that actually addresses the uh, basic needs of a student and their family. So we got a, a grant to start um, a closet that has shoes, clothing, um, hygiene products, and uh, school supplies. And it is my favorite place on campus. It's like an actual boutique. We created it with the idea that there was to be no shame involved. Um, you know, what? no matter what the circumstances were, like you are cared for, you deserve, you know, nice, comfortable things. Um, and so we made it into this beautiful boutique um, and it's got a fitting room in there. Like it's, 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 oh, it's wow. cool, right? Um, and so we took over that and it's just, it's just amazing space. Um, but we're, what makes it so awesome too, and you know, I, I hope other people can implement this up in their spaces as well, um, is it's multi-layered. So not only does it serve students who may be experiencing, um, and families may be experiencing homelessness due to fires or domestic violence situations or, um, losses of incomes or, um, you know, things like that. It, we also built in a factor for students um, to be able to volunteer in the space and get their hours. So COVID took away a lot of those opportunities for students to go off campus and get that volunteer time for applications and scholarships, things like that. So we wanted to bring that to be accessible back at our school. So our space is mostly run by youth volunteers and students at our school, which is really cool. In addition, we made sure that we brought in students that maybe don't get as many opportunities to participate. And so um, all of our clothing is um, is actually processed. Um, once our youth our student volunteers process everything, like what are we going to keep? What are we going to, you know, um, donate back out? Which when we donate items that maybe don't fit our, so we go back through and we, we make it very specific to um, certain shelters in our community and things like that. So we, we go through donations a couple of times to make sure people are getting the things that are appropriate. Um, but our our life skills students, so students, um, you know, in our special ed department actually come in and wash the clothes and practice folding them, bring them back up, and they make our our space run and smoothly because we could not do it without them. And they, they come in and just bring everything back beautifully folded, and we just slip it right on the shelves and all these things. So um, our fashion design club is, has, uh, you know, has done things where they come in and change the mannequins because I have zero patience for those mannequins and their arms falling <laughs> off. Uh, they come in and take care of that for me and for us. And, uh, and you know, and then we have our clubs. Our clubs are, uh, they do donation drives for us. We have amazing community partners that come in and are really proud of our space. And so we've we have been able to do so much um, with that with that closet um, and have been able to impact over 65 families this year through that. So um, it's yeah, it's really exciting. It's probably my favorite uh, project that I've been able to be a part of and support um, at my particular school. And um, I just get so excited each time I, I even think about it and its, its impact. So um, I hope others can do it and know that it just brings so much joy and happiness in the middle of all the chaos and sometimes sad news, but it's, it's awesome. Wow. Honestly, <laughs> I'm like a little teary. Just hearing you talk about that is the coolest thing. And I love how 
the students are involved in running the whole thing from the washing of the clothes to running the center to choosing the different things to having food like uh, clothes drives mm-hmm. and it's just yeah what a good way to rally around your community and make students feel loved and cared for yeah. wow and what I want to bring out too is it it comes back to your point of it's linked like if a student comes to school without socks their you know or shoes or they feel like I don't have what's necessary is they're going to worry about that the entire day. They're not taking in information. They might not be learning at their highest capacity. And it's going to affect the school culture and your learning objections, like objectives as a teacher. And some of the schools will say like, oh, I don't have time for prevention. Like we've got to inc- like increase our literacy rate or we've got to, you know, decrease um, suicide rates. Mm-hmm. And you're like, these things are absolutely connected. Um by the safety of our students and how well they're provided for at home and at school. So, oh man, I'm so proud of you. (laughs) This has been awesome, Caitlin. Thank you so much for doing this show with me. Before we end, is there anything else that you'd like to share knowing that prevention professionals from across the U.S. are open to listen to this and they might hear you? Is there anything that you could um, say to them that might help them or advice? I know these are just tough times and, um, you know, everyone's out there grinding to do really good work um, and just serving people in so many different beautiful ways. And that sometimes it just constantly with with things the way they are right now, feeling like we're not we're not hitting that bar sometimes and um, and doing enough. And that can be very challenging. So um, I don't have any like, you know, way to fix that. It's something that I think, you know, there's days that I have. I, I definitely have that feeling. Uh, but my big thing is, is always just we we all just got to make space for that self-care um, because that's that's just so, so critical um, for mental health, for physical health. And so, um, you know, I I'm glad the conversations are kicking up around self-care more and people are embracing it more um, because I, I just feel it's so, so critical and finding the things that just bring you joy so that you can refill your cups and continue to do the things that you love as well for others. There you go. That's another episode of Party Talk, where we empower leaders in youth drug prevention. And Caitlin Alfonso, thank you so much for being on. We'll see you all next time on the Party Talk podcast.